Well, we hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving time with family and friends. We know that those times can be so wonderful and a tad horrible. So <laughs> at the same time, such is life, right, in general. But we're glad that you are here this morning. The words that stuck out to me from our reading this morning was from verse 44, where Jesus says, so you must, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The season of Advent is all about God coming. Advent celebrates that notion. In fact, the word Advent means uh, Adventus. It's the Latin word Adventus, or the Greek word is parousia. You may have heard that word. Um, it's referring to the coming of Christ. For us, it's the second coming. For the Jews, it was the first coming. Advent basically anticipates the coming of God, helps us to gather our thoughts and to focus on that. Um, it, and it gives us two basic perspectives. Number one, it, the season offers us an opportunity to share in the ancient longing that the Jewish people had for thousands of years. As we read sacred texts from those times, like from Isaiah and other texts from the, from the Old Covenant, we are invited to relive those moments with God's people where they were aching inside, longing inside, looking for God's response of Messiah. And then secondly, we're urged to engage with that same longing for the Messiah's second coming because the scriptures promise, Jesus himself promised, that he will come again. And so we're to enter into that shared longing. It's an interesting phrase. Longing describes a kind of ache, a spirit of anticipation, of expectation, and because of that, of preparation, because we're expecting someone to come, just like those of you who had guests at your house this week. You prepared your house and prepared the meals in expectation and anticipation of guests. So when we entertain the idea of, and have an expectation or an anticipation of the coming of Christ, it sort of prepares us, causes us to want to prepare ourselves and our lives. Because of this, this kind of longing, shared longing that we have about the coming of Christ, there's a kind of dark twist in Advent. Um, not unlike a, a barren couple who's longing for a child. That longing can often cut to the core. Um, and there's a kind of darkness in Advent, something that we don't usually talk about in our modern culture, which just wants to tinsel everything up in anticipation of Christmas. But we intentionally enter into a kind of achiness in Advent. We don't just enter into jolly and a happy, be nice you know, kind of thing to everyone around us, even though that's a, an absolute commitment we have as Christians is to be nice, right? But there's a deeper side to a Christ follower when it comes to this season of Advent. We should always be kind, always be generous, always have a heart of giving. But that's because we remember that all of us on some level, every one of us, everyone that we meet is in some kind of battle. And there's darkness that touches us all. So when we come with kindness and light, it's because we're trying to bring relief and hope to those people. And we recognize that we all need God to come for us. 
All of us need Emmanuel, who is God with us. Everyone needs the Lord. Most of us try to be honest with our feelings most of the time. Uh, Sometimes we feel happy, sometimes we feel sad, and we try to just own that and kind of go with our flow. So being genuine is, is being honest about where we are. But even though that's good about being honest about where you are and what you're feeling, there's a spirituality in us that demands something more than emotion expression, right? It demands us to be able to not only feel what we feel, but to actually stop and be influenced by the feelings of others, to have empathy for others who, when we don't necessarily feel those particular ways ourselves, that's what we mean when we say shared feelings. So in Advent, we're trying to engage in a shared feeling together, and that we open ourselves to feeling differently than we would naturally feel. This demands vulnerability. Being vulnerable means that I'm going to let what you're experiencing and what you're feeling influence me. I'm going to let you and what you're experiencing change me. I'm opening myself up to what you're going through. And we don't only just do that with each other and called with those that we live and to what's happening in our world around us, but we're also doing that in a way historically with the communion of saints, with all those that have gone before us who are God followers and what they experienced in their heart. This is the why of the Christian calendar. This is why we celebrate the various seasons within that have various theological goals in them. We're letting the story that has been going through history become, that we're a part of, the story of Jesus, the story of redemption, the story of communion of the saints. We let those things change us. And this is a different kind of spirituality than I grew up with as a charismatic because I always thought as a charismatic, I just need to, you know, just be honest about how I feel and follow the Lord and what's happening in me. And it was pretty much about me (laughs) expressing life in me, in my world. And uh, you having to put up with it because I talked a lot. But anyway, uh, this kind of spirituality that's informing us by seasons like Advent and the other ones that we jump in, It's a deeper kind of spirituality. It's a more demanding kind of spirituality. It demands participating in things that I don't really feel like participating in right now, like the darkness longing of Advent or the joy of Christmastide when I might be going through a hard time or the excitement of Epiphany that we celebrate in January or the repentance of Lent. I mean, we enter into some of those seasons and we may not necessarily feel those things and feel that way. And it might even seem disingenuous to try to enter into another feeling that's not legitimately what we feel at the time. But, but if we are vulnerable, what we do in those seasons is we allow darkness or joy or excitement or repentance, etc., to touch us in those seasons, seasons that feel out of season to us. And, and where we're not naturally feeling that way. What this does is it means that, that our faith isn't just private. That, 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 that there's a corporate side to it. And there are times when we need to be conscripted by the church and by the biblical story into feelings and focus points that we don't naturally find ourselves in at the particular moment. There's, a, there's something really beautiful about this, something really powerful about this that calls to us. Uh, There's a text in John 
that's instructive about this idea. This is John 21. And this is where Jesus is talking after the resurrection to Peter. And he, you remember the story when he had finished eating there on the shoreline, eating fish, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And a third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. I always find it interesting that God doesn't mind hurting your feelings. That sometimes he talks to us about things that hurt. And it's not that he's trying to be mean. It's just sometimes we have to wade through our hurt to see what's going on in us. Jesus, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said again, feed my sheep. Verily, truly, I say to you, or tell you, watch this. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, we could read into that when you're mature. You will stretch out your hand, someone else will dress you, and they will lead you where you don't want to go. Now, Ronald Rollheiser takes his take on this text that it speaks to us on a couple of levels. One is the direct levels when he says, you'll be taken where you don't want to go. It's actually referring to, to speaking of Peter's death. But on another level, Rollheiser sees it as two different kinds of spiritualities at play here that allow the will of God to be played out in a person's life. The first kind of spirituality is all about our dressing ourselves and going where we want to go. This is it's actually wonderful. This is loving God with the stuff that resonates individually with us, personally with us. And you may love singing worship at church or uh, going to small groups. I love to read and to study. I crave it, actually. And uh, that's me dressing myself and running where I want to go. And, and God loves that. I have a friend who feels closest to God when, when he's out in nature, even more than when he goes to church. I was like, okay. But he goes to church, but he just loves being out in nature, feels the, feels the smile of heaven and loves, feels God's presence all around him. I have another one who feels closest to God when she's just serving someone in some way. And just as the more than reading, more than sitting silently in prayer, she just loves to serve and feels God's hand and God's presence and God's uh, life in her coming alive when she serves. See, the, this is a kind of spirituality where you get to love God the way you want to love God. You get to love him with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul. This is you loving God. And it's critical. I think this is the first love kind of expression that Jesus says in Revelation 3, don't lose this. Don't lose your first love. And I think it's wonderful to love God in the way that you want to love God. But then this text suggests another kind of spirituality, one that makes demands on you and captures you, where you have to stick out your hands and someone else grabs it and someone else dresses you and someone else tells you where to go where you don't want to go. And it is referred to as a thing that happens after you hit maturity. This is the confining, constricting, disciplined spirituality that leads to life. 
some spiritual stuff seems easy and fun to us, natural to us. It's wonderful to engage in those things. Other stuff doesn't. We're invited to experience both. The stuff we love and the stuff not so much. This is at the heart of why we prioritize the Christian calendar. Because it's here we listen to the way that it instructs us. We're submitting ourselves to the biblical story. There are ideas and perspectives and hopes and promises hoisted up in these various Christian seasons that end up pressing on us and forming us if we'll let them. So here we are at the beginning of Lent, whether you feel like it or not. Lent, or excuse me, Advent, it, it's the beginning where, where we're being called into a hope that has been present in the world because of the darkness that sits around us. We, are the, we're to, we light the hope candle. Hope is the belief that there is more than what we see. In 2 Chronicles 25, this king, Amaziah, was asking about how God can intervene for them in a particular time of trouble. And the prophet, the unnamed prophet, says, you know, Amaziah, the Lord has much more for you than this. What if that's true? If you look around your life, you may have wonderful blessing, you may have horrible things going on. But what if hearing the voice of God saying to you, the Lord has much more for you than this, is part of what Advent calls us into. This sense that we're to entertain hope that God has much more for us than we currently see. Even when we don't feel hopeful, even if we're in the midst of pain or in sensing injustice or having a heartache, the awareness that evil is in all shapes and sizes, roaming around us. Yet in the advent of Christ, it means that things around us that are wrong will not reign forever. And we're called to hope in the midst of advent when we don't feel like hope is in us naturally. Two aspects to this. One is we need to sit and assess the pain around us the pain that is present because Christ has not yet come fully. He might be manifesting himself in your life. There might be ways in which you taste his joy, sense his peace. But there's still, because he isn't fully here and isn't fully present, there are spaces where his absence reveals pain. Secondly, we're to long for Christ's appearing precisely because of the pain that's around us and the injustices that we see. There's to be a kind of longing that God must come to put to right the things that are wrong. We're to answer that kind of tension, an ache of wrong around us. What will fix humanity is not politics. I mean, we should engage in and, and, and be in, you know, for good politics. I'm not saying that. But it's not going to fix What's ailing us? The, the, what, what will fix us is beyond human capacity. We always miss the mark, even though we have a sense of what it is. We have a sense of the beautiful. We have a sense of justice. We have a sense of love. But whatever it is that's in us, in the human race, it's, it's like we, we can't quite hit it. We tend to miss the mark 
Missing the mark is what harmatia is, and that's the word for sin. All sin is, is not sin isn't something that just you're naughty, you're sinful. Sin just means you miss the mark. You have a sense of what should be, and we always seem to be less than what, what should be in how we treat people and how we view ourselves and how we engage in the world. There may be lots of good, but we know it's not exactly the mark. We're always a little below the mark. And so this awareness of pain, this missing, this awareness of longing that only Messiah can fix this is at the heart of what the Jews longed for in the first advent when Jesus appears in the manger, is their longing for it. And the Jews were really open about this and it gave voice to their pain. So we read in texts from the Old Testament, like Exodus 2, it says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. They articulated their cry. There's something so powerful about not skipping over the pain you experience or see around you. That's why this anticipation of Christmas, Christmas isn't about just pretty lights on the trees and tinsel but that it's a sense of stopping and saying, we need God to appear because things are not as they should be. And it's kind of a pause to enter the darkness of the absence of Messiah. We need to stop and sit in it and to let it bruise us, to let it bruise us. The word vulnerability comes from the Latin word vulnus, which means wound. When we're being vulnerable, we're simply stopping and looking at what's going on around us, what we see in the news, how we see people being mistreated, how we see people living in lack, looking at the pain of mistreatment from others or maybe how we have failed, enough to let us be wounded by it that it touches us, that it hurts us. To be vulnerable means that you're open to the wrongs in this world wounding you. It's modeled in the Job story. You remember that story where Job is just really going through it? And it says in Job 2.11, when his three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite, just a little guy. <laughs> that was a Bible joke right there. Bildad the Shuhite. <laughs> it's a little taller than Nehi Maya, right? Anyway, um, really sorry for that. I know, it's really bad. It's just all, you, you're just glad I don't tell you half of what I think when I'm talking. It's just, anyway, they heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job, and they set out from their homes, and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads, and then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I don't know that we could sit for seven minutes so much of our sense of control is about our words. 
But they let the pain of Job just sit in their hearts and they experienced it by their being there in silence. I don't think we evangelicals and charismatics do this very well. I think we're pain avoiders. For example, we, we tend to skip Golgotha and want to just run directly to resurrection. You know the highest attended service of the year? You know, guess what that is? It's Easter. You know what the lowest attended service is of the year? Good Friday. People don't like Good Friday. Let's skip Good Friday, go directly to resurrection. But this wasn't so with the Jews. They stopped at pain and they felt it, they pondered it, they articulated it to God. This is one of the reasons we're called into the Advent season. We're being summoned, conscripted, to give voice to pain. We, that we see, that we feel, and to acknowledge the only complete hope that we have is God's appearing. <laughs> There's an art to embracing pain, to not move too quickly to a fix, to not run from what ails you, to admit that there are things greater than you, and to enter those things vulnerably. We need to enter into the reality of pain that is in the world to let it hurt us because it's real. Staring in the face of pain and injustice is a huge part of what prepares us for hope, where we say things are not as God intended them to be. We need to stop and look at our disappointments and look at our losses, the unanswered prayers, where we have been offended or betrayed, where life has not been kind or even fair. And instead of just ignoring them and stuffing them, where we will act later out of them without even realizing it, we come openly. We need to look at the pain and the injustice, not only in ourselves, but in the wider world where the hungry stand in the midst of the overfed. The war-torn places where it's hard to even imagine what it would be like trying to have a family survive that, pulling your children along, running for your life. Where innocents are unfairly prejudiced against or abused where industry is willing to destroy the planet for a dollar without batting an eye. We need to look at the abuse around us of children, of spouses. We must remember the plight of the unemployed and also the overworked. All these things make us realize that this is a broken place. But this takes some silent observation first. This is what Lent is, Advent is for to pause. And after the silence and observation, we're compelled to ask in the way the psalmist asks, where are you, God? Why have you forgotten us? How long, Lord, will these things be as they are? Are you really coming at all? Is, is, is that a hope or just a fantasy? So many of the psalms capture this kind of angsty, disturbing cry. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer by night and I am not silent. Such daring prayer. Just articulating your heart, your disappointment. 
I think I've told you the first time I ever heard anybody do this, because I grew up American, man. You don't say bad things, you know, to, to God, right, or to your parents. <laughs> you, just, you, just, or to, you just always find something nice to say. And here is this little Roman Catholic nun, Sister Giuseppe Marie, and I'm sitting next to her. I'm a good little Pentecostal kid working at the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. And I'm sitting next to her one morning, and she looked over at me, and she said, oh, my gosh, I had such a time with God this morning. I thought she was going to tell me about this wonderful prayer moment. She said, I was so mad at him. And I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, I'd never heard, I'd never, I just couldn't believe those words. I, what, what do you mean? She said, well, you know I'm married to him. I'm a nun. I said, okay. She, I said, well, what happened? She said, well, he said, I, she, said, she said, I got so mad, I took my Bible and I threw it against the wall. And I said, God, when are you going to start treating me like a woman? I kid you not. My first thought was, and you live to tell this. I mean, I, did, I had no conceptual space for being upset at God. No conceptual space. Doesn't mean I hadn't been. I said no conceptual space for talking about it or letting it ponder and or think about it in my mind. But you know, when she said it, what I began to feel immediately was, I wish, I wish I felt close enough to God to be honest like that. See, oddly, this hopeless kind of angst is what set the Jews up for a hunger for Christ's appearing. This honesty about things not going right. Where are you? What is going on? Sets up the Jews for looking for Messiah. And it will do the same for us. Because somewhere in the midst of staring at the pain, feeling its wounds, dancing with hopelessness, we start to entertain what if what if things change? It's called hope. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and we read the rest of Psalm 22. It said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you so far from saving me? So far are the words of my growing, groaning. Oh my God, I cry out day by day, out by day, but you do not answer by night and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One of Israel. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. See what's happening in the psalmist. He's saying, man, the world sucks big time. You have forsaken me, but I know the stories that there were those that have gone before me and they put their trust in you and they were not shamed. You came. See, after being wounded by the pain and made hopeless, we can begin to dance with hope. This is the text in Hosea where the, uh, Hosea says or speaks for God, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What is the valley of Achor? Achor means the place where things get muddy. Things are not right. It's a kind of, it, it's, it, things are turpid is the word. It's a cloudy, opaque, thick liquid with suspending stuff that's gross. And it, it harkens back to Genesis 1 where it says that there was chaos and darkness 
over the surface of the deep, right? So there's this kind of, but yet there was the hovering of the Spirit. There was lots to do. Acor is the description of when things happen to you that make you feel dejected or you have no strength to even entertain the hope of change. But yet God says, I will make this valley of Acor a door for hope. This is the fruit of adventing well. This hope starts to grow in you because you start looking past the pain, past the injustice, to the one who will come to put wrongs to right, to clear the clouds and the murkiness that evil seems to bring. And as hope dawns, we begin to realize that the wrongs will one day be put to right and you begin to act like you believe it'll happen. This is the Advent process, the Advent journey. You begin to prepare because it's going to change. Things are going to happen. God is going to come. So you start thinking, well, if he's going to come, even in spite of all this, how should I prepare? Do you know what, what the word prepare is? Another word for prepare in Christian parlance? Repentance. I need to change up stuff. He's coming. Right? So we find this in Matthew 3, right before he shows up, or right before they know he's there. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So when Israel faced their pain, they began to hope, in spite of pain's relentlessness. And they began to ask how they could prepare the way for the Lord to come in the midst of the pain. We do this too. In 1 John, John writes, Dear friends, now are we children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, all who have this hope in themselves. Purify themselves just as he is pure. It's talking about this idea that the minute you start having hope in the midst of your pain, you taste it, you're vulnerable, you experience it, but then you start realizing, wait, someone's bigger than this. God can come. He'll do something. And you begin to expect it. And then as you begin to expect he's going to come, it starts purifying you. It starts changing you. This is not just a spiritual hope that has no effect here. When we embrace the hope of the second advent for us, it's Christ's appearing, to come as rule as king, where all wrongs are put to right, God is all in all. Strangely, when we embrace that, we start to ask, how can I live what is going to be coming right now? That's what repentance is. We begin to long for God's future to become more of our reality today. And it changes the way we talk to God. Instead of just talking about the pain, which is totally appropriate, we cry out, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. Now on earth, like it will be when heaven appears, when Christ comes. It turns out that the kingdom of God is that which moves God's future into our present. So we see the marks of some wrongs that become averted or overcome in the here and now by defeating injustices we can encounter or we overcome pain here by prayer and engagement. And now while we wait for a second appearing where it will be done fully and where tears will be wiped away, we start engaging with an expectation that Christ is coming at least in part now, that somehow 
His action and his presence is known now. So we obey Jesus' command to comfort the mourners and care for the sick and confront our prejudices and clothe the naked and free the captives. Why? Because it's coming. We might as well get it going. Love and care for those we encounter. Care for creation. Treat people with dignity. Value life. Live ethically or rightly because we're the Advent people. (laughs) And as we do this, our expectation of his appearing increases. And we believe he will come with more fervor. We don't know when. It doesn't really matter when. Our job is clear. We're the Advent people. But it is that expectation that brings us to Christmas. For the appearing they longed for in those thousands of years before the first Advent, the first coming, it finally came. And we read it in Luke 2, and we'll celebrate it. So we'll celebrate it on Christmas Eve. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't freak. Don't be terrified. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Family, it happened once. He came. It will happen again. The New Testament ends with these words. Revelations 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Then John writes, come, Lord Jesus, come on. As we begin this new year, enter the story. Let Advent and Christmastide and Epiphany and Lent and Eastertide and Pentecost form you, conscript you. Love God how you like, but let us drag you in to loving God more fully and more maturely. Amen.